Yes. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show offers listeners first-hand insight in starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. My guest today is Miss Madonna Badger, founder of Badger and Winters Advertising Agency in New York City. Madonna was raised in Kentucky, was an excellent student and an overachiever, evident by her successful business in one of the toughest cities in America, New York City. She was living the American dream when a profound tragedy struck that propelled her into overnight fame for an incident so devastating that even though it was in 2011, many of you will remember it. It was Christmas morning when she awoke to a fire in her upstate New York home that claimed the lives of her three daughters, Lily, Grace, and Sarah, and the lives of her parents, Lomar and Pauline Johnson. Overnight, Madonna lost everything, her home, her family, her belongings, and her sanity. Today, we are going to hear this resilient woman's story, how she found solace in Arkansas, how she healed and helped others by telling her story, and how today she has carved out a new life full of promise. She has remarried, and her company has been on the forefront of changing the way we look at women in advertising with her hashtag Women Not Objects campaign. Her story is so compelling that she has been interviewed by Matt Lauer, Oprah, Vogue, People Magazine, and more. I recommend Googling Madonna Badger and watching her TED Talk and her Women Not Object on YouTube. The video is great. It's shocking and graphic. Normally, two things I kind of really like, but you might not want to have your kids in the room when you watch this. Today, Madonna is championing a change for women in advertising and business. She is a trendsetter in advertising and is on the cutting edge. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table an entrepreneur, an inspirational speaker, author, wife, mother, daughter, and survivor extraordinaire, Miss Madonna Badger. Wow, thank you. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. So upon learning you were coming to Little Rock, because you're from New York and you just flew in to see, I guess, my cousin Kate over here. Yes. Um, I started back to revisit I, I met you years ago but I started back to revisit your story and I tell you my thoughts have been consumed with you mm. for lots of reasons you've done so much your life story is so powerful and so inspiring um, not just your overcoming tragedy but from starting your business at 27 out of a shoebox I think you and I may have some stuff in common mm-hmm. and growing it to a multi-million dollar company in New York with clients like Calvin Klein, Procter and Gamble. Yes. All right. I learned from watching your TED Talk that as early as age five, you've been a survivor. You referred to yourself as a fighter. I want to talk about all that you are, your triumphs, your losses, and what you're doing today. But first, we need to start with the incident that catapulted you to national fame on Christmas morning, 2011. Can you tell our listeners about that day and the night leading up? Um, I... Um had divorced my husband in 2009 and all three of my young girls were um, very dyslexic and there was a school not far from where I had bought the new house um, in Stamford, Connecticut called Winward um, that I wanted my you know girls to go to they had been accepted they were in and I felt like you know I should do the commute you know it's a 30-minute commute 
So I bought this house and, you know, it, there were definitely issues. It took a lot longer than we thought um, to fix the electrical systems and fix the different parts of the house that were, um, you know, basically old. Um, it was an old house. It was a, Yeah, it was from the 1800s. Oh, really old. And so, um, you know, finally the house um, was, you know, done. Basically a bathtub had to get installed little things. And um, obviously, you know, my father, who had been the director of safety for Brown Foreman for many years, and my mother, who had owned a HVAC electric company that had once belonged to my great uncle, um, and, you know, me, we all felt like the house was safe, obviously, we wouldn't be there. And um, so I woke up um, on Christmas Eve uh, in the early, early morning. It was actually early, early morning Christmas Day after having wrapped presents and all of those things. And um, I woke up to smoke in my room and the house was just completely quiet and, you know, really dense black smoke. I couldn't breathe. And so it was a Victorian. So I was able to crawl out of the window and there was still scaffolding on the outside of the house for a cedar shake, which had to go in in the spring. And um, so I ran up the scaffolding on the outside of the house to the third floor. Because you were on the second. Yes. And um, I was able to open the window, um, but I couldn't get in. The smoke and the fire was so... um, complete that I couldn't get in and so no matter how much I my mind and my heart pushed to get in the window my physical body wouldn't you know let me just go in um I was you know took on enormous amounts of smoke trying to do it and then finally the fire department came and so they helped me get down um while I was screaming at them obviously where to go and by then my children were gone Um, They were probably gone, according to um, the fire investigators I had to hire, um, because uh, the city took my children and my parents out of the house and then tore my house down and took it to a dump. And so they ruined all of the um, physical evidence of the fire. Um, So clearly something had gone wrong um, in the fire that was something the city felt that they were to blame. Um, and they took my house down to the size of, you know, basically a hole in the ground. Um, so you got down off the ladder. I got down off the ladder and I was taken into the hospital and basically the next couple of weeks were a blur, a lot of, um, uh, psych wards. I think I was in three different psychiatric hospitals, um, just because they didn't really know what to do with me and there was no place really for me to go. Um, you know, I didn't have a house. I didn't have any, anything. Um, I, you know, I would go to one psych ward and they would just cry. You know, the doctors would come in and sit with me and cry or the nurses would come in and sit with me and cry. How did you find out your kids were gone? They told me that morning in the emergency room. And then they just shot me up full of stuff. I mean, it was I was just screaming like a wild animal for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And um, I don't remember um, any of it. When you woke up after being shot up, did they have to? Did it flood back in, and they have to keep doing it over and over? 
It was the only thing they knew what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't really, I mean, you know, doctors and nurses were crying in my room. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that are supposed to be helping me are like crying over me Mm -hmm. and how sorry they they are. You had the funeral within five days. No, I didn't. Did, I read that online. It's, well, so what? <laughs> <laughs> so how many days did you have? Was it till you had the funeral? Uh, the funeral was um, nine days after. Okay. And so um, anyway, so I went into a final psychiatric hospital in Tennessee. And Kate was one of your cousin, Kate Askew, was mm-hmm. one of the only people that I could talk to. Um, she and her husband, Jess, I could talk to them and I would call them, you know, when it was my turn. So I was like totally isolated after this event in a psych ward with nobody that I knew just being filled with drugs. With limited phone calls. With limited phone Phone calls, limited everything. So you had the funeral. That was all after you'd had the funeral though, right? Before and after. How did so, you manage to get out and go to the funeral and get dressed and show up? I don't have any idea. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was just the grace of the divine and the grace of God that put me through that. I don't know how I gave a eulogy. I don't know how I was able to function. I don't know how um, any of that happened. Um, you know, the at one point, the priest told me, the first priest told me that I couldn't um, talk for my children, and that that wasn't appropriate. And that it, are uh, you Catholic? Um, I am Catholic, but we went to an Episcopal church where my, all my children had been baptized, and so um, you know, I had him fired um, by the <laughs> by the funeral director. And um, brought on somebody who was incredibly spiritual. And um, I was just being guided by angels. I really don't know how I did any of that. Didn't the priest say something to you about that? Because you haven't lost your faith. No. Which happens a lot when you go through something like this. Yes. How have you managed not to lose your faith? Because uh, the God I believe in is a loving God. And so, you know... God, uh, it's what the priest said at the service, which was God cried first. You know, it's not, um, things don't happen for a reason. You know, like people that say that to me, it's like, oh, look, we got a parking space. Oh, my, my, my parking angels yeah, are with me. Yeah, it's like, really? <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I don't really believe that. I don't really believe that um, this is our only life. I think that we are given many, 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 many lives. And I think I've known my children through many lives and that our love is, you know, incredibly strong, the strongest thing there is. So I don't believe that God is a puppeteer um, up there sort of saying like, you know, oh, here's a parking spot. Oh, you got into college. Oh, you know. You've been bad. We're going to burn your children up. Yeah. Oh, you're poor. You know. know? Yeah. Yeah. No. No. He's a loving God. And he cried first. I think that's a beautiful saying. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the suicide watch? How long did you have to stay on suicide watch? Um, it was a while. Um, you know, I mean, the first thing Kate said to me when she came and picked me up from like the third psychiatric ward was fourth psychiatric ward um, was, 
okay, look, you can stay here with us, but you can't kill yourself, okay? Like, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the deal. <laughs> and I remember saying, like, oh, yeah, no, of course. No, I would never do that. All I'm thinking is, like, that's a pretty good oven. Bet I could get my head in that, you oh, know? Like, <laughs> I'm thinking, like... That's such an old-fashioned way to kill yourself. <laughs> it would have been good. I mean, you should see the size of their oven. <laughs> it would have been a good way. This is a great place to take a break. I know that you are paralyzed by depression, and I know that you came to Little Rock. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with resilient Madonna Badger, a New York ad executive, an entrepreneur, a wife, mother to Grace, Lily, and Sarah, and daughter to Lamar and Pauline Johnson, more of Madonna's triumphs and tragedies to come, and we're going to talk about how she ended up in Arkansas. We won't be gone very long. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed, starting with door-to-door sales, then telemarketing, to mail order and catalog sales. And now, a third of their sales comes through the internet. Over time, Carrie's business and leadership knowledge grew. As early as 2004, she began sharing this knowledge in her weekly blog. In 2009, she founded a nonprofit Friends of Dreamland Ballroom, and in 2014, Brave Magazine. Today, she has branched out onto the radio with this very production, podcast, and live stream on Facebook. Each week on this show, you will hear candid conversations between her and her guests about real-world experiences on a variety of businesses and topics that we hope you'll find interesting and inspiring. If you'd like to ask Carrie a question or share your story, send her an email or send her a message on flagandbanner.com's Facebook page. Back to you, Carrie. I told you we wouldn't be gone long. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Madonna Badger, founder and ad exec of Badger and Winners Advertising Agency in New York City, whose life changed profoundly on the morning of Christmas 2011 when her home caught fire and took the lives of everyone in her family. I like to talk about how my entrepreneur people that come on have two phones and are like multitasking the whole time. Well, I want everybody to know that Madonna flipped open her laptop during the commercial or during the break and was going to start sending, I don't even know what she was going to start doing. I said, come on, you got to get back on the air. I also want to talk about how Madonna will forever be known as the woman who opened her soul and shared her story of heartbreak and recovery to all of us. She will forever be known as that. But today she is also known for her innovative social awareness advertising campaign simply called hashtag women not objects and other trend setting advertising ideas that we are going to talk about all of that today. But before we do, let's pick up where we left off. Before the break, we were talking about the night your life changed forever and the events that happened right after the fire that took your family. Tell us how you came to spend a year in Little Rock, Arkansas. So Kate and Jess were the people I could talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Kate and I had been roommates in college together. And she was like the first person on the plane, you know, when everything happened. And we had been, you know, not close at all, really, over the years Since in between. College, yeah. yeah, but just close enough, you know. Um, her daughters, um, interned for me or, you know, little things like that, but not, you know, like we weren't going on vacations together. Her intern for you in New York at your ad agency. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, anyway, so I called Kate and I said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like I can't be in these isolated places and, um, 
there was so much wrong with it. And so she said, um, because she was on her way to visit me, and she said, well, I'm turning around, I'm going to get my pearls on, and I'm going to come bust you out of that place. (laughs) And I was like, okay, sounds good. I'm ready. And I'm like vibrating. And um, so she puts me in the car, and um, we drive from Nashville to Little Rock. I don't know how. Um, And we get here, and of course, um, her friend is Helen Porter, and she created the Psychiatric Research Institute at the University of Arkansas here in Little Rock. So Helen and Kate had arranged for me to meet with the uh, person there at the Psychiatric Research and Dr. Richard Smith. And that day, it was like the day before the Super Bowl. And um, I, A, I couldn't believe that somebody was talking to me because usually at the places where I'd been, they just gave me drugs. And he was the first person that said, um, this person, meaning me, is not crazy. She's just really, really sad. And she, you know, needs some love and some care. And so, um, and he was the first person that didn't say to me, you have to do this. You have to do, here's how long everything's going to take. And you have to understand that. And you must do that like a, like a child. And he didn't say that. And then he also said, you know what it's like? When a mother loses her child, it's like a giant nerve gets severed when it's as tragic and quick as yours. So you've had three nerves severed, basically, as well as the ones that you had to your own parents, which is not as, you know, by my age, you know, hopefully not as intense as that one's obviously with my girls, you know, because Lily was nine and Sarah and Grace were twins and they were seven. And so that sever was just, you know, it felt insurmountable. But he explained that little by little, skin will grow over it and another little bit of skin will grow over it and then you'll love something else again maybe I don't know what it'll be for you and then you'll you know like you'll be able to experience a little bit of joy and he like sat he made it make sense that you know this was a huge long process and you know if I didn't you know I'm a 27 year recovering alcoholic and drug addict so if I didn't pick up a drink if I didn't pick up drugs if I didn't um, act out like you know in any of those ways that little by little by little it would get better you start going to AA I've always well I'm not really allowed to talk about that well, my husband has been going to AA for a year, and he loves it, and he loves to talk about it. And he loves to tell everybody that he thinks everybody should be an alcoholic and get to go to AA. He thinks it's the best program in the world and that everybody could benefit from it. Um, when you were here, you found support groups. You found a great doctor. You lived with my cousin Kate, asked you, and she says you're an honorary member of the family because she calls you her sister. And Kate started taking you with her because she's a rare book collector and she's actually been on the show if anybody ever wants to find out who cousin Kate is go go watch her podcast we played it twice it was really good so you started traveling with her to go 
I don't know, what do you call that? Antiquing? What do you call what you do, Kate? Antiquing. Digging through old stuff. Picking. <laughs> Treasure hunting. hunting. There you go. That's what I'm listening to. So tell us about how that helped get you thinking and present and in the moment. Well, it was, you know, it's hard, um, obviously, suffering, you know, um, that much loss, suffering so deeply. Um, it's hard for anyone's mind to be able to go to something else, right, other than the suffering. And that was truly the case for me. It was very, very hard. And But it's healthy and good to try and, you know, watch a movie, even though that was, you know, a joke. I yeah, that seems yeah, impossible. Yeah. So Kate had another friend named June Blankenship. And June... It was, and she passed away, um, but she was a an estate dealer here in Little Rock. And so she had a few warehouses filled with stuff. I mean, like stuff in bins, in boxes, in uh, up four high, you know, four chairs high, just a professional a furniture. hoarder. Yes, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a professional um, lover of things, shall we say. And nice things. And very nice things. And fun things. And silly things. And so, you know, that kind of stimulation, like when you walk into a warehouse of that many just like crazy land stuff, it was um, it was a place where I could kind of disconnect from my own brain for a little while and just kind of, you know, what's in this box, you know, and you go through and, and then as I would go through boxes, I would see old dolls that were like from the 1800s or whatever. And I would think, well, the person that owned that doll is dead. And then I would see, you know, an, uh, something else that was, you know, crazy old. And I think, well, that person's dead and this person's gone and this thing is just here. And like, what, you know, the idea that it's also fleeting, the idea that there is no forever, um, and the idea that, um, that, that I could just look at all of these things and kind of go through and look for treasures like, you know, whatever. Um, it was just, it, you know, laughing and talking and showing one another things and, you know, June was just such a big-hearted, lovely woman. And um, whatever I found that I liked, she'd say, please, keep it, keep it, you know. And she never gave anybody anything, you know, because it was her stuff, you know. And so it was, like, such an honor that she wanted to help me and give me clothes or, I mean, not clothes, sorry, give me rugs or, you know, whatever. Um, so after a year of being present digging through these things and making you totally present. And in the words of Eckhart Tolle, now you're right there. You begin to decide that you couldn't do that forever and that you needed to go back to New York City. Yeah, well, Kate and I tried to do a sale out in Round Top. And, you know, Kate did great because she knows, you know, what she's doing. And she's actually like a professional in this field. And I thought that it was easy and I would just, like, I mean, 
there was one sofa I had recovered three times because it was never, ever quite right to sell it. <laughs> so even if I sold it, I would never make my money back on it. And P.S. I didn't sell it. I didn't sell a thing. Like I was out of pocket and I was so disheartened. It was all over. And then Linda Kim, who was a creative director who had been with me for years, came down. At your um, ad agency in New York. Yeah, came down to uh, Round Top in Texas. And she said, you know, you could always give coming back a try. You know, we all miss you and we need you. And so anyway, we went to dinner and that night and I looked at everybody and said, um, I have an advertising agency like in New York City and I think I'm going to go back there. Like, I think I'm going to give it a, a shot because I'm clearly not an antique dealer, even though I love you all so much. And, and before you left... Someone took you on a trip to Thailand, I think? Uh, yeah, I took myself on a trip to Thailand. And I went to uh, meet um, young uh, girls there. Um, there was a woman I had met here in um, Little Rock. And she had worked with this organization that helps save young sexually abused or um, domestic violence or who have been orphaned for a number of reasons in Thailand, but mostly just to take them, these young girls out of the sex trade. And so it was an orphanage. And I said, okay, I think I want to do that for Christmas. I think that was your first Christmas. That that was my first Christmas. And I was like, okay, I think I want to do that. And, um, and so I ended up going and meeting all of these young women um some of them were you know 16 some were 12 some were eight some were two and you know one little girl had lost her entire family in a car accident and she was the only one left so she she lost three siblings and her parents and I was like you know what if these young girls can live and do this and live like basically in a concrete bunker dorm room with nothing and find joy and peace in their lives and be of service in this world, I can do it too. You know, it was just really a huge eye opener to me um, of the human condition and how much I wasn't alone. Mm -hmm. So you went back to New York. I went back to New York. And you had an episode in the mirror. I think it was in New York City. No, that was in Arkansas. I think this story is so powerful and I and then we're going to move on to what you're doing today okay so let so um tell that story well Kate and I had decided that and Jess that maybe our little threes company idea was like over (laughs) (laughs) and um because I came down the stairs one day I guess I'd woken up a little bit and um I was like wow, this is kind of weird, right? Like, (laughs) you guys are married, and, like, I'm in my pajamas, and, like, maybe I should find a place of my own. Like, let's give it a shot, you know? Maybe I'm ready. And then, of course, Helen Porter flew into action and found me a house, like, you could have thrown a baseball. Um, From Kate's house. From Kate's Kate's house. house. And so I moved in there and, um, you know, painted it, and then, June gave me all the furniture, which was amazing. And um, it was my own little place. And so as I was cleaning the bathroom, um, you know how you do before you move in, and I was in the 
bathroom and it was there was a huge mirror and I um, started to cry and I looked up into the mirror and I was like wow that woman is in a lot of pain it was so wild that it was almost like my spirit or my soul body was looking at my physical body and was like whoa she's in a lot of pain and my face it was just you know such a huge cry you know I used to call those level tens, you know. And then suddenly, um, my children started coming to me. And Sarah came to me, and Gracie was a little more hesitant, but she came. And then Lily came to me, and then my whole family started coming around me. In the mirror. In the mirror, my parents, and I could see everybody, um, grandparents, you know, all kinds of people. And Sarah said to me, there's nothing to be afraid of, Mommy. Um, And we're okay, basically. We're okay. And um, the most important thing is love. And by the way, dreams are more real than this life. And I was like, okay. Uh, Like, oh my God, this is really happening. And it was, I had heard them before and I had been always, you know, I'd, been with them before but I hadn't had such an incredible experience and then I was reading a book called Proof of Heaven by Evan Alexander and in the book he describes those three things it was after Sarah had told me um, the exact same things that there's nothing to be afraid of love is all that matters Um, and there was a third one it wasn't the dream one. The dream one was um, really from Sarah. Um, but there was a third one, basically like, don't worry about it's us gonna be or okay. everything's going to be okay. And that was when I really knew that I had spoken to them, that they were really okay. And as a mother, what do we want most in the world but for our children to be okay? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I knew I didn't have anything to fear. Um, and it was a turning point for you? Big turn. That was, that was one of the major turning points. All right, we come back. We're going to go to New York. We're going to find out what she's doing today. Um, I'm speaking today to the resi- resilient Madonna Badger, a New York ad executive, an entrepreneur, a wife, mother, Grace, a mother to Grace, Sarah, Lily, and a daughter to Lamar and Pauline Johnson. Madonna, though known for her tragedy, is more than that. More of Madonna's triumphs and her successes to come. Here at Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, we love dance, and we love dancing into dreamland. As a matter of fact, that wonderful event celebrated its 10th anniversary last year. We celebrated all night with loyal guests and past performers. But in the interest of our dancers and guest safety during the pandemic, we chose this year to postpone our largest fundraiser, Dancing Into Dreamland 2020. Please know that this love affair with dancing and The history and restoration of Dreamland Ballroom has not been dampened at all. As a matter of fact, it's revitalized our commitment to building a loving and inclusive community. We intend to be a place for people to come together in unity and talk safely and openly about personal and social issues that affect not just our community, but the entire United States of America. This unusual reprieve, not mounting Dancing into Dreamland 2020 this year, has presented the board an opportunity to spend a year on building partnerships and strategic plans that will help us reach the goals that we have. We hope that you'll share in this vision and find it in your heart to give in lieu of your usual ticket and table or sponsorship of Dancing into Dreamland. Please consider it 
and visit our website, dreamlandballroom.org. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Madonna Badger, founder and added zec of Badger and Winners Advertising Agency in New York City, whose life was changed perversely when on Christmas Day in 2011, a fire took her took the lives of her entire family. To her dismay at the time, she survived. After a year of suicidal thoughts, depression, and the guilt of being alive, Madonna began sharing her story of tragedy, depression, and recovery. More recently, Madonna remarried and launched her innovative social awareness advertising campaign simply called Women Not Objects, where she got a standing ovation. All right, we've got 20 minutes left, and I want to talk about everything you're doing. You were moving back to New York. How hard was it to get back into business again? Um, It was very hard. We were lucky enough to have a great client or two, so that stuck with us. Um, But it was it was very difficult, and then it got um, a lot easier as I just continued to do it. I mean, that was something that you know I've been working um, basically since I was. 15 years old or 14 years old. You started your business on, out of a shoebox, I heard. In, well, it was petty cash box, and I was 27. Um, but you knew in high school what you wanted to do. How few people know that? I think that was just like a weird thing that happened. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yes, I did. I think that spirit inside of me knew. And so at 27, you had moved to New York and you started your business. And yes. now you're actually kind of going back and doing it again. Yes. Yes, round 75. Is fighter in you that you're always talking about? Yes, I think so. I also think that um, there's a lot of dignity in work, and there's a lot of um, integrity in, you know, doing what you can do and what you like to do. And what you're good at. And what you're good at, what naturally feels right. Um, and then they, but the great thing was that I knew I didn't want to just sell, like, bottles of cream anymore. What do you mean? Um, well, I didn't want to do just beauty advertising. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to have a voice in changing this industry that I was in, which was in many ways harming young children um, and young girls and boys. When you say by selling cream anymore, is that because your leading account was? Avon. So that was your number one account. Yes, I, it wasn't that I didn't want to sell cream. I thought, you know, that a- actually Avon is an incredibly noble client because of how many women it helps to support around uh, the world. But it was that I wanted to be a part of a broader service to my industry about how we show and depict women in advertising. That is extremely risky. Yes, I almost lost my business. Really? Yeah. How? Because all of those beauty clients that I had and had for years fashion clients built up were like, yeah, see ya. We're not going to be a part of this. So you have this idea that you're going to start this uh, Women, Women Not, not objects, objects campaign. And how do you first launch it or get it out to the public? What is the first thing you do? The first thing we did, honestly, was a lot of research to understand what it is that we were going to stand for. (coughs) Excuse me, because there's so many um, great, 
you know, Jill, uh, Jean Kilgore, um, you know, Jennifer Newsom. There are a lot of amazing people that have already stood up and said no. What was different about my case is that I was in advertising and I had objectified women in the past. So we came up with our own way of knowing what objectification was. So one is a prop. A woman doesn't have a voice or a choice in an ad. The second one is um, a part using, <clears throat> you know, sort of uh, different kinds of women's body parts um, as a way of selling things. Um, the third was plastic, so over-retouching to beyond the point of human achievability. And the fourth, which became the most powerful one in many ways, was for all of us, men, women, etc., to use empathy. So what would it feel like if that was my daughter in that ad, or my sister, or... Um, you know, my wife. So men and women could use the same kind of defining process to know if an ad was somehow making a woman into a thing, because that's really what objectification means. Weren't you one of the first to put a uh, straight man in Calvin Klein underwear? Yes. Is that objectifying? Yes. So you're not doing that either? No. Wow. You've come full circle. You, yes. you were the first woman to put a straight guy in Calvin Klein underwear. Mm-hmm. He, it, it, the difference was with Marky Mark in the underwear is that it was a part of his show. So he had, you know, his band and, you know, pulling down his own jeans was a part of his show. So he own didn't show. have all these qualifications. He had a voice. He had a voice. He wasn't he, overtouched. He was not overly retouched. So he only no. had two of the four. I mean the the and even even then I think it would be risky to say but um, yeah I did that. So so you you've made the decision you're going to do it. Is your presentation the first time you launch it to the public or was no. it okay what was your first? So my first the first thing we did is that we launched it with a bunch of mommy blogs and we spent like 5 grand and just to get the message out and to see how moms reacted to it. And that we didn't want to have it be from an ad agency because we didn't want the material to be tainted. Um, like it was a, a, a stunt. You know, we wanted it to have anonymous legs. Then it had uh, got picked up by everybody. Ashton Kushner, um, you know, all these different celebrities, Alanis Morissette. Every, so it, now it's really gaining momentum um, social media-wise. And then and this is your YouTube video. Mm-hmm. And then Matt, Matt Lauer asked me to come on the show. And that's when you just saw, like, this insane spike. Um, because I knew him from doing an interview earlier about the fire. Mm-hmm when I was trying to prove that it was the city that had actually caught my, that had, you know, it's had over killed two my family. Million, it's had over two million views. Yeah, that's, I mean, actually, if you count all the views on Facebook and everything else, it's up to around 50 million. And it's in over 170 countries. I think I did, and I think there's 7 billion people in the world, and when I did the division on that, it was like... Five percent of the population has looked at it. Yeah, it's really. I mean, I I um, had a young woman. 
I now am a part at Can. I'm now a part of the See It Be It mentorship program. I'm the whatever chairman of the board. I can't remember. They gave me some big title, but um, it basically I had a young woman from Pakistan say that women not objects had changed the way that she went to her director who was doing a spot or something and said we we can't show a woman belly dancing in this ad it has nothing to do with anything and like let me show you this thing and i'll tell you why and it worked and it worked over there over there that's big yeah so you've you've launched this youtube video you've had over two million views it's now up to 50 million um uh if you include facebook and the other social media and then you've decided you want to get on the roster at can film festival so basically, um, I've never been to Cannes before, and it's a really big deal for the advertising world. It is the award, okay, that anybody in the world wants on their mantle. They want a Cannes lion. And so um, we found out that we finally got in touch. My business partner, Jim, finally got in touch with the head person that books talent for the main stage. And we flew to London. We pretended like we had business there. And we flew to London and said, let's have a drink. And lo and behold, they met us, which was unbelievable. And we showed them the film. And they were like, okay, you're on. You're on. That's it. You're doing it. I was like, okay, cool. And so um, I gave a 40-minute speech um, talk up to about three to 4,000 people. Uh, and every single one of them for the most part, are in advertising. And that had been my goal. I wanted to speak to the global community in Cannes um, about what we were doing. So 40,000 advertisers. Yeah, well, there's probably 100,000 people there. We were definitely the talk of the festival because of the three standing ovations and, and the fact that, like, this kind of you know, nobody pipsqueak came out of nowhere and just sort of laid it on the line about objectification. And then we started a petition to the Can Lions for the next year because there were so many horrible ads like, you know, your job, our job is to, you know, uh, make sure you, you got the bridesmaids' names right that you slept with. Your job is to make it to the church on time. What? <clears throat> yeah, a flower ad, won a gold line. So we petitioned them and, you know, had a hefty number. And they are great. They wanted to make change. And so the Can Lions changed the judging so that if an ad was objectifying or stereotyping um, to either gender, it was out. It couldn't even make it past the jury room to make it into the can line. Well, do you know now why you lived through that fire? I mean, yeah. who's to say? I don't know, but boy, you are making changes out there, aren't you? So you come back to New York, you lose all your clients, yeah, and you get new ones. All new ones, yes. I read uh, where you have Procter & Gamble. Yes, Procter & Gamble, we lead their worldwide um, diversity advertising. So we created um, an equality, uh, equality, obviously. Do you have Calvin Klein still? No, uh, not my thing. Um, so what's next for you? 
This year, I will be the president of the Glass Lion jury. So the Glass Lion is specifically for work that promotes change um, and also promotes gender equality. So that's a, a biggie. Um, and uh, I'm also a part of the See It, Be It program. I've just won a, uh, an honor as part of um, advertising people who have made a change in diversity and equality. So there's a, lot, a going lot going on. A lot of good business coming in. I want in. to tell everybody that we're talking to Madonna Badger of Badger and Winners Advertising Agency in New York City. She is a survivor and an entrepreneur, and she has a great story. And if you didn't get to hear the whole show, you need to go to flagandbanner.com and listen to the podcast. It will be made available next week. So your mother was an entrepreneur. Yes. You are an entrepreneur. Yes. Any advice for our female entrepreneurs out there? Um, you probably advice on everything. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think my latest advice is be an agent of change. That if you're a woman, um, and or a man, quite frankly, anybody, um, but that be an agent of change. If you don't see, if you, if something is happening in your organization, or if something is happening in the company you work in, whether you're an entrepreneur or a part of a, of a bigger company, stand up and be an agent of change. Make a difference because that's the only way it's going to change and don't blame anybody along the way that's what's so unique about you you went through all of that you don't blame god you don't blame anybody and i know trying to uh, get over the guilt and the shame of being left alive you could blame yourself and you don't do that either oh yeah i do no yeah oh yeah that's, a that's hard that. Thing. Yeah, that's the hardest one. So uh, you are definitely a champion of change. You got the New York fire codes and inspection codes changed after what happened to you. The yeah, the Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Oh, Connecticut. The ones in Connecticut. Yeah. You got uh, advertising changed through your Women Not Objects campaign. Uh, your daughters were both dyslexic, which I'm a proud dyslexic person, and your ex-husband has started a campaign for them or a fund for them what's it called lily sarah and grace fund he died last year oh, i'm sorry and is yeah. it still going on yeah oh yeah yeah lily sarah and grace fund and what it does is it helps teachers to recognize the signs of dyslexia and also helps to teach dyslexic children more about what they're capable of instead of what they're not capable of. You know, that was a problem in school for me. You were defined by your grades, and if you couldn't make grades, I had this, uh, you know, this feeling of hopelessness all the time because no matter how hard you tried, you weren't going to be able to do it. And I think that um, that's a great cause. There's a lot of people out there that have some sort of learning, learn, reading or learning disability. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And that usually means you excel at other things. Like, look right. at me, I have the gift of gab. Right. Well, it's like, it's like telling women that we aren't confident enough. And so it makes us broken. When really, what if the, the, me the measure by which we measure confidence, what if that's the broken part? What if that's the part that is like all about sort of A plus alpha males being arrogant and, you know, overwhelming or even A plus... Uh, you know, women, confident women, um, you know, who we have a whole set of attributes like high vein and things of that nature. What if those are what's broken? So what if instead of fixing 
the people fixing the women, fixing the children, what if we fix the system so that the system doesn't become the thing that measures everyone's ability as, as opposed to measuring what is their disability? I've never thought about that. It's a deep thought. So you can't help it. You're going to have a legacy. What do you think it'll be? What do you want it to be? Lily, Sarah, and Grace. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You are just... I'm telling you, I've been consumed with reading about you. I just I just no. loved reading about you. You're just an inspiration to everybody, how love is full of recovery. And Tim, for handing me your gift for coming on the show. And it's a desk set for you to take back to your office since you're an oh. entrepreneur woman. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God, I love it. Isn't it cute? It's the U.S. flag in the center, your desk set. And then there's Arkansas because we were important to you. And where you oh, were born, yeah. Kentucky. And, of course, New York City. Oh, my God, I love it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I bet you. you don't have that. You're a woman that has everything, but you don't have that, I bet. I don't have that. <laughs> thank you, Madonna. So if you've got a great entrepreneurial story you'd like to share, I'd love to hear from you. Send a brief bio or your contact info to... Questions at upyourbusiness.org. And that's questions with an S. And finally, to our listeners, thank you for spending time with me. If you think this program has been about you, you're right but it's also been for me. Thank you for letting me fulfill my destiny. My hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your life, or your independence. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of flagandbanner.com. If you miss any part of this show or want to learn more about UIYB, go to flagandbanner.com and click on Radio Show. Carrie's goal is to help you live the American dream.